Hey, if you are a teen, youth, junior high, and high school this morning, stay right here because we believe like this message today is going to be for the whole family. Uh, and what I want to just do is um, really quickly, there's been so much that's happened over the last several weeks, not just here at church, but like just fruit that's been happening around. And I want to share um, some really quick resources with you. Um, if you are interested in taking family discipleship, to the next level. Like you're looking inward at your family and being like, is this all God's had for us and planned for us? Or is there something more? Can I just quickly throw up three books uh, that have really, really helped shape my heart and my thinking and my understanding of scripture? The first one is a book, uh, and this, this is important because this isn't just something that's happening in-house, but this is something we're seeing like nationally, globally even, about how the Lord is bringing the family back into ministry. And something how we've been disintegrated in our homes and God's bringing reintegration back in. These have been really, really helpful books. Take Back Your Family by Jefferson Bethke. He's been pointing out that we've been living in an experiment, a family experiment for about 100 years. That the way we do family has drastically changed from the 1920s. And saying nobody's actually checked in and said like, is this working? (laughs) Is the way we're doing family actually producing the fruit that God has been wanting us to produce? And, or are we just getting used to it and we're just trying to manage? And, and let me ask you this question. How many of us in here have had a hard time balancing work and family and friends and all of the other pleasures of life, right? All of us. We feel like we're constantly in a juggling act. That first book, he really clarifies where that juggling act feeling came from. And that's not actually God's hope for us. That's not actually God's plan for us. So really good one. Number two is this book called Habits of the Household. It's relatively new by a guy named Justin Early. And he basically, for us, especially us with younger kids and teens even, really, really important book to make your family rhythms and routines at home something where you're actually preaching the message of Christ through the way we discipline, the way we rest, through our conversations. And it's not as hard as you think. That sounds really like, oh my gosh, what should we, how do I like bring God into my family? It's so hard. My family's so bust up in all these kind of ways and we all have our stuff. But good news is these are really, really simple ways just to allow the spirit of God to move in your family in practical ways. The third one too is actually what I believe might be the biggest game changer. We're in the crisis of fatherlessness in our country. Yeah? We can see statistically how many problems, sociological problems in our country are attached to absent, neglectful, non-present fathers. So the intentional father is a way to bring back what it means to be a father, what it means to be a good, godly man and raise a family. And again, not as hard as you would think. So if you pray that if you... Check out some of these resources. I, th- I believe that God is going to do something, some shaking in your family for the better. Amen? Amen. Today's message is called Shalom in the Home. Everybody say Shalom in the Home. <laughs> shalom in the Home. Shalom is a beautiful Jewish word. We translate it as peace, but it's more than just peace. Shalom isn't a feeling. Shalom is the full reconciliation of everything that has been broken. So God's purpose in this world is to bring order to where chaos has ensued. To step into your life and into my life and find cracks of brokenness and glue them back together. That's what we call redemption, reconciliation. Shalom is about making things whole, making them as they should have been in the first place. What has been broken. So shalom is something many of us experience 
except for at home. And this is something that I feel like the Lord is saying, shalom needs to come back to the home. Come on, somebody, it rhymes. Let's go. So here's the thing. There's a study. There's a study by Barna, which is a, probably has done the most robust uh, research on millennial spirituality of any group out there. And they found this. Um, they did a, a study on Christianity in the States. And this might not surprise you, but it also might devastate you. They found that 70%, thousands of people in this study, 70% of people in our country call themselves Christians. Yeah? But here's the, here's the thing. that You're like, oh, amen. But also, only 8% of those 70 are what they would call resilient Christians. What does it mean to be a resilient Christian? Go to church, pray and read your Bible, and have live by a general sense of New Testament ethics in your life. It's not that hard. 8%. What we have is a problem in our culture where you can be a Christian but not a disciple of Jesus. This is a real-life thing. This isn't to point fingers. No, everyone's like, oh, that's him. Right? Don't, no point fingers. But this is a real problem. We have crafted our faith in this country, and this is an idea totally foreign to Jesus. When Jesus said, follow me, he didn't say, oh, yeah, believe in me up here and believe in me in concept. Believe that in my moral set, but you don't actually follow me. That was never his intention. This is an idea that's completely foreign to Jesus, that you can call yourself a Christian but not actually walk in the way that Christ walked. And so here's we have a problem. This is one of the biggest problems. In fact, a guy, you might know his name. His name is Dallas Willard. Says it this way. (laughs) He's the guru of spiritual formation. He says this, The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. It's beautiful. Isn't that the call? To live heaven's reality into every corner of human existence. He says the greatest issue is Christians not being disciples. Why is that? Because he, he has a quote in another book where he says it this way. Every one of the world's problems can be solved by discipleship to Jesus. Have you thought about that? Whether it be global warming, economic inequality, political policies, secularism, the breakdown of families, the crisis of fatherlessness, postmodern gender theory, systematic racism, you fill in the blank. Whatever pressing issue you must care and pray to see change in, Whatever it is, if you trace it back far enough, the ultimate solution in every single case study is a lack of discipleship to Jesus. Have you thought about that before? Discipleship to Jesus is everything. It shapes everything. It shapes you and me, and it transforms us with a new heart. It comes into our family, and discipleship to Jesus transforms our family so we don't live just to, self, just to have gratification in the home, that we all make each other feel good. But actually, we're pushing each other to move into the likeness of the Son, to be transformed and conformed into His will. 
And then from there into the business and the marketplace. And from there into our churches and into our communities. And all over, heaven is reaching all cracks and crevices of society. But for some reason, many of us, we've experienced this at different levels, but we've subtracted the home. And um, one of the important things that we need to recognize, I think we talked about this first week. If you've been tracking with us, here's kind of the problem in a nutshell. This is a home. Everyone say home. This is a home. Home has historically had three things that make up a biblical home. Number one is faith. Everyone say faith. Faith happens in the home. Faith is built in the home. Faith is manifested in the home. Faith takes place and root in the home. Number one is two is say productivity. Productivity. That's a big one. Everyone stopped on that one. Productivity. Faith and productivity. And then the last one is unity or relationship. And so what's happened historically is all three of these things are in the home. Parents would raise their kids in faith. They'd raise their kids to know a trade so that they could go and make a difference and impact in this world. And also in the home was a place of unity, belonging, and relationship where we could come and feel that sense of, ah, I'm home. What's happened over the years is faith, productivity, faith has gone to churches. Productivity has gone into an outside marketplace. And all that we, most of us, you and I, all we have remaining is unity, which is a good thing. At least we get one. So what is family? Oh, family is the place where I just love my family. That's the place where I just get along and people belong and people know me and I feel welcomed and loved. And that's a great thing. But what we have is the disintegration. We find ourselves balancing things that have left the home, trying to juggle what it looks like. And so I want to cast a vision today for what reintegration might look like in the home where we have faith, productivity, and unity all coming back together in the home without us going, all going back to becoming farmers, yeah? Because that's kind of like back what, how it used to work. But I believe that there's a thing. So some, we're going to go over a couple really, really important parts about our families. Number one is this. Your family is God's multi-generational plan for his kingdom. Have you thought of your family like that before? Your family is God's multi-generational plan to build his kingdom. What does that mean? That means when you have your parents and you get married, your marriage now has a mission. Your marriage isn't just to, just to be loved by the other person. In fact, if you enter a marriage trying to always get love and get what you need out of the other person, that marriage will not last. Marriage happens when both of us come together in united love and we say, we're going to pursue what God has for us in this family that we're building. And so in that mission that we have as a marriage, it actually explodes once we become fruitful and multiply. We start having kids. And so then that mission that kids have, these kids aren't just left at home while mom and dad go out and, and find mission in the world, but it actually happens within the entire family. But if you think about it this way, family is not the end. And sometimes for all of us, we feel like the purpose of family is family, Right? Isn't that true? Like, ohana means everything. And many of us have cultures where like, oh, family's really big in my culture. Yeah? And that's really, really, really good. But also, family is not the end. Family is actually the means by which God is building his kingdom in this world. So your family has a purpose. Your family is set on a trajectory for a bigger purpose than just what's going on in our household. And what does the enemy love to do? The, bring it up. What's up, bro? Good to see you. But this is, yeah, Joshua Allo, everybody. Bro, well, good to see you. Oh, that's right. Welcome, bro. I was like, hey, I know this guy. So, 
But for real though, our families, our ohanas, we have to have a spiritual lens. We have to look at it from spiritual eyes and see what is the Lord actually trying to accomplish in our family in a bigger sense. And I think I already already preached that sermon. That was a couple weeks back. So you can go back, listen to them online. But here's the idea. I'm going to show you this this verse from Luke 16. This is one of the most tricky verses. Many of us wrestle with this. But check this out. A large crowd was following Jesus around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. (laughs) What? Jesus is telling us to hate? What kind of God is this? Tell us to hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife, and your children. I was trying to do an Ohana series and not mention this verse because it makes it really tricky. But here's, we have to catch what Jesus is saying. Hate your mother, hate your father, hate your wife, hate your kids, brothers and sisters. And you know what? Might as well hate your own life while you're at it. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? Your attachment to family, even that needs to be sacrificed at the altar of discipleship. So what happens is we could become idolatrous, and this sounds like a heavy language, but we could become idolatrous in our own families because we cling on to the unity aspect without, and just throw faith out the window. As if building faith in the family isn't the main goal. To Christ, it is the main goal. He's making it very clear here. Now granted, Jesus is using exaggerated language. Don't go actually hating your family. He says, by comparison, to follow me is to consider everything else that is is taking you away from me as something to scrap, something to die to, your own life included. If you cannot die to your own life and carry your cross, you can't be my disciple, Jesus says. And that's a heavy word. But here's what, this is the encouraging thing that's built within this, is all it means is that all I have to do is fix my eyes back on Jesus. If I've been fixing my eyes on my family, I want to have the perfect family. I want to feel loved by my family. I want to feel this. I want this, my family to look like this and feel like this. No, no, no. I want Jesus to manifest himself in my family. That's the goal. I want my kids to be full-fledged Jesus followers, not just Christians. Amen? I want my brothers and my sisters to follow him as I follow him. Remember Cain and Abel? This is an interesting thing. When, when Cain kills Abel, God goes after Cain. And he says, where's your brother? Right? Does God actually need to know where he is? No, God knows what happened. But he's asking him. He's reminding him, hey, where's your brother? That's, that's your brother, right? Where is he? And what does he respond? Am I my brother's keeper? So what God often, t- or what, what oftentimes the enemy tries to do in our households is separate us in a sense where take out the unity. If you remove the unity from the household, hey, I do me, you do you. I got my own faith. My brothers and sisters don't have their faith. Well, that's on them. Am I their keeper? Right? What a family says is the unity piece adds a collectiveness about our household that says, I care what is good for one person in our home is good for all of us. Paul says that. What's one good for one person in the body of Christ is good for the whole body. Amen? Right? The house divided cannot stand. Unity keeps what God has put together together and lets nothing take it apart. So this is an important part. Unity is a huge part of our family as Christians. But listen, look at this last verse again. Otherwise, you cannot be disciples. 27, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, 
You cannot be my disciple. He starts at the top with your family, and he narrows it down to you. This is where it all begins. Faith begins with you and I confessing that Jesus paid a price that we couldn't pay, and he covered our sins on the cross, and then when we lay our lives down to serve others in faith in Christ, now we're walking on a path of discipleship that, according to Dallas Willard, can absolutely change the world. Amen? Do you believe that? That, well, imagine if every single Christian didn't just call themselves a Christian, but picked up a cross, laid down their life for their neighbor, radically transformed our communities, our world would look a ton different than it does now. Discipleship matters. That's the point. Next point is this. Big part of discipleship is that family discipleship starts. How do we build disciples within our home? How do we make disciples here? The discipleship happens. It starts with how we malama our time. How's your time spent? Good news, you don't have to answer that because I found statistics for you. I know how your time is spent. You ready? This is from the U.S., like a, the federal U.S. studies, um, the American Time Survey and world, da- world data. So this is thousands and thousands of people. Check this out. Over your lifetime, look at how you spend time with friends. This is your time with friends over your entire lifetime. You start when you're like in your teens. You have two to three hours a day on average. That's the most you spend in a day with friends. Isn't that cool? School, you're going to school, things are happening, you're playing with friends, you have sports after, you're just with friends all the time. Look what happens as you get older. <laughs> Something happens around 33 where it starts taking a significant drop. I heard this saying that Jesus, the greatest miracle Jesus ever did, was having 12 friends in his 30s. Amen? (laughs) Greatest miracle he ever did. Because look at this. Friendship just after that, whoa. Right? So if you're in your 20s, if you're in your teens and your 20s, think discipleship. Think, what does this statistic tell you about the kingdom of God? That you have an influence and an impact on people your age now more than you ever will in the rest of your life. Now's the time. Now's the time to invite friends to church. Now's the time for you to start discipling, being discipled into the ways of Jesus because your life matters to those around you. This is the time. And when you get to my age, you forget what friends are. <laughs> friends become playdates, right? And then I don't know what happens after playdate years. I don't know. But that's where we're at. But that's how we make friends is we make our kids be friends and then we become friends. But anyway, it's a, it's a strange thing. Check this out. Time spent with family. Yeah. This is how our world is malama-ing our time right now. Time with family. When you're 15 to 18, it's at your peak. It's at the same curve as friends. But what happens when you hit 18, 21, 27? And what, what happens is we leave the home. We disintegrate from the home. And we try to make our own life. And there is a sense of that. It's biblical. Leave and cleave and become one flesh when you get married and start your own family. That's a good thing. But we just see this as, what does this mean? Think about it with heaven's eyes. In your ohana. Some of us, and I, hear, I get this all the time, a lot of the growing pains in families happen when their kids start getting close to launch. They start getting close to the 18 to 21-year-olds. And parents try to kind of keep them right? Parents keep our kids, and we're like, no, you're not leaving the family. You're still under my rule, and you're still in my house, and they're growing into young adults, and the young adults are like, we want freedom, but then the parents are like, you can have freedom once you have responsibility, and the kids are like, we'll have responsibility once you give us freedom, and so there's a standoff 
between freedom and responsibility because there's an adolescent growing into an adulthood and parents who are often unwilling to change and to release them into the next generational calling. So this is really where so much of our problems stem from is that transition from when I'm under my household into the next season wherever God may call. There's growing pains there, and that's okay. They're normal, and we can work through them. But check out this one with your partner. Time spent with your partner. This is one of those that's actually really encouraging. Hours per day, you and I are going to have, usually people get married late 20s, early 30s. That's where the bump is there. There's a little dip in the 40s and 50s, and that was due to career taking over. You spend a little bit less time with your partner as your career hits its peak. And then, retirement age, you get all this time again with your partner. Some of you love that. Some of you guys are loathing that, right? (laughs) Oops, Ben. But here's the idea. Your, Your time with your partner what does it mean to have all the time in the world with your partner? This one never drops, you know, until something, until death do us part, yeah? So sometimes that's unexpected things happen in life, and you don't get to make it to many years. But for those who make it the long haul with your partner, what does that look like? What's the point spiritually in terms of family discipleship? It means that God has given you a covenant partner to spend your whole life with, so your mission is always together, there is no season where you're just, oh, without my spouse. There's, you're always together. And God is calling us, all of us, no matter what season. Who, for those of us who are married and have, a, have our life partner, God is calling us in whatever season that looks like to continue the mission, to keep building oneness together and keep fostering new generations of growth. And this one is going to be tricky. This one is hard. I almost shed a tear almost every time. Time spent with your children. For those of us with kids, hours per day, for most of us right now, and Meg and, I, Meg and I are like mid-30s, mid to late-30s, I guess technically, whatever, who's counting? So mid to late-30s is the peak of your time with your children. Cherish it, because it feels, you, you've heard the saying before, parents, the years are, the days are long, but the years are short. It happens like this, and look at the steep drop. It's literally, having kids is like a volcano. That's what it looks like to me. That's what it feels like. And for those of us with young kids, we're at the peak of the volcano. This is where the lava comes out. This is the temper tantrums. So what happens is when it, when it steeps down, your kids grow older and less and less and less time happens. Good news. Dads, especially young dads. Survey said millennials, that's dads in their 30s and 40s, are the most present with their kids in over 200 years. Isn't that crazy? That also means we're not working as much, but we don't pay attention to that part, right? There's a cost there. But the truth is we value our time at home with our kids. Most of it is we look into the economy and we're like, we can't do this. We can't keep up. We're just going to be stay-at-home dads. <laughs> that's, that's literally how we think. But here's the idea, guys, is thinking about it spiritually. What does it mean to have this precious time with your kids? What does that mean? It means it, the iron is hot to raise disciples of Christ in your 20s to 30s, going into 50s as your kids come into teens. Your window is short, but kids are sponges. In this time, this is the biggest, tightest bond, I would say, other than my husband and wife. Kids and parents have the potential to have this deep, deep sense of connectivity and oneness that God will use to foster the things of God. We, what's really cool is I'm watching right now. For you guys who've been coming the last couple weeks, Esther did announcements the last couple weeks. This is like an experiment. I never asked her to. She just wanted to do it. 
And I think that's beautiful because there's something in our relationship where I don't have to pressure her to be a disciple, but there's more caught than taught. Amen? So as she sees, as your kids see you honoring God with your time, your resources, with everything, your kids are catching it. This window is the time where kids are catching the most from your life. So for his parents, and even uncles and aunties, other people who are influencing kids, teachers even, this is the time to make sure our discipleship with Christ isn't perfect, we all mess up, but we're walking it out in a way that's intentional so that the kids that we influence see us and be like, that's what I want. Look at the peace that dad has. Look at the peace that mom carries. Look at their, the purpose and mission in their life. I want to be a part of that. So it's really important that it starts with us first. We carry our cross first, and the rest is caught. So if the question for you is like, well, what happens? Why do all these drop-offs, why are they so drastic? Here's why. The last one, your time spent with your coworkers. Super long. <laughs> we spend a lot of time with our coworkers in culture right now. Probably more than we ought to, Right? Me and Meg lived in a country where their working hours were 30 hours a week. And we're like, this is awesome. We got home. The biggest blessing about living in a country with 30-hour work weeks was less time with our boss and our coworkers. Actually, like we felt it. We felt the difference of coming home. And now you might have great coworkers, and that's an awesome thing. But for us in that season, we're like, we just want to be together without all these people around. So what, what that means is there's a huge kingdom opportunity here too for you to minister in your workplace. What does that look like for you in your business, in your job? This is where most of your time is spent. If that's where your time is, that's where discipleship's going to happen, right? Here's the thing. God says it this way. Many of us, we look outside for God and we're looking for him and being like, Lord, where are you? You're up there somewhere and I'm trying to get something from you. But Jesus says it this way. He says, the hope of glory for this world, the only true hope that this world can grab onto is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Paul says that. It's not Christ up there, the hope of glory, Christ in me. This means all of us have this kuleana to wherever God places you in marketplace, in society, in school, wherever you're at, to be a living encounter to the living God. Amen? Simple. So where people might interact with you is where they're going to actually interact with God himself. It's a crazy assumption. You're like, bro, Pastor Mark, I'm pretty boss. <laughs> like, they're going to get one bad view of God if they're looking at me, right? Guess what? Discipleship. When we walk in the ways of the Lord, people, their eyes notice. You're doing something different. You're walking with something different. You're carrying something different. What is that? I can tell you all the testimonies I heard of that, of people saying, there's something different not about Christians, there's something different about disciples. Straight up. If your life has been one of those where I just feel like I'm a Christian, which is good, praise God you believe in Jesus, but you haven't taken those steps to walk them out, once you start doing that, you're going to notice some crazy things. I believe it. And so here's what we just, how we kind of think about our time with Christ. Here's a couple lessons, putting it all together. Family time is limited, so cherish it. Your friend time is limited, so prioritize the real ones. This is like the biggest lesson for teenagers. I tell them all the time. Bro, what are you guys hanging out with that kid for? Oh, I like him. Yeah, but it, he's getting you into trouble, <laughs> you know? He's not bringing out the best, and you stop hanging out with that kid, right? 
But we have to make really intentional decisions with our friends. Prioritize the real friends who are pushing you into the calling that Christ has already deposited in you. If you don't have those friends, go find them. Because they're there. I believe that they're there. Partner time is significant. Don't settle. Don't settle. When you choose your partner, pick someone to go the long haul with. Amen? Children, time is precious. Be present with them. This is the number one thing with dads especially. Moms too. Moms are naturally really good at this. They don't need reminders. Dads, we need reminders to get out of productivity mode and get back into unity with our kids in the home. Sometimes we get stuck here and we think our only purpose to serve the home is to provide for the home. And what a kid needs most and what the fatherlessness statistics in our country are pointing us to is that dads are needed now more than ever. Amen. And not just dads, like biological dads, you can be one spiritual dad too. You can be one uncle with father-like traits that you can father, spiritually father kids around you. So needed right now. Be present with your kids. And the last one is this, is co-worker time is significant. So find energy. <laughs> find co-workers that will actually build energy into you. And one of the problems that we're facing is that all that time spent with co-workers oftentimes leaves us with a lack of unity in the faith. We actually, it's a give and take. We'll spend more time at work and less time at home, and we actually see the frustration. But here's what I want to say in terms of integration. What would it look like to get your kids involved with work? What would it look like to get your coworkers involved with your family? What God has brought together, let no man separate. We don't have to make false dichotomies with our life and say, I have this life and I wear this hat. I have this life and I wear this hat. You are all the above. You are who you are in the workplace and who you are at home all at the same time. And that's a beautiful thing. What would it look like to integrate your life into a place where, where people are being discipled because you don't have to juggle between things. You're holding them all at the same time. Amen? One of the, the greatest things, I had a youth pastor growing up, and one of the greatest memories that I still hold from him was, um, it was about my junior or senior year in high school, and I didn't know I was going to be a pastor at the time, but he told me, why don't you just come out and hang with me for the day? That was his job, right? His job is ministry, so it's kind of both. <laughs> it's these two together. But his, his idea was, I'm going to just show Mark what it looks like to be in ministry. And I don't know if that was intention or not. I think he wanted to meet and talk story, but he's like, come to the store with me. So we'd go to the store and we'd grab groceries. And he's like, hey, try watch my kid as I go grab this. And then I was watching his baby when he'd go do that. And what was really cool was I actually got into a place in his life where I saw, I saw him as a dad and a husband, not just as a boss, so to speak, or like a, a youth pastor. And what was really cool was that the world's integrated to me. <laughs> One thing that's really cool is um, I went to a field trip with Esther too this last week, and she got there, and all her friends are like, you're Esther's dad? I'm like, yeah. So they see me as like Esther's dad, and they're like, what do you do for work? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. What's that? She goes to public school. So like, what's that? Oh, uh, I lead a church. You guys ever been church? Oh, uh, my grandma went to church, but I never go. Interesting, whatever. And then we start talking about Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to. It's public school field trips, but I'm like, whatever. So I had all these kids praying, and yeah, no. So she, um, it was a really, really cool thing, and just to see Esther's reaction, because now Esther's like, oh, that's my dad, but that's my pastor at the same time, right? The world's 
can be together. They don't have to be separate. And so that's, what's, that's what we're talking about in terms of integration. What does it look like for your family and your work to be integrated? What does it look like instead of faith just happening at church on Sundays to integrate into your home? Hence those resources. You're integrating a spiritual part of your faith into your everyday life at home. I heard it this way. Some of you guys, how many of you guys love a good local moco? For real. One time, this is a true story. One time, me and Fale and Jason all had a couple weeks off of work at the same time. So we actually did the local moco tour. We'd get together every week, and we'd just go find where on island has the best local mocos. So, and Jason get mana'o, you guys. So you guys need a good local moco recommendation. He has this, like, little list. He's like, well, technically, uh, this place is better. Anyway, we're going looking for local moco. How many of you guys like bentos? Like, you love bento box. Okay, just, just, just checking. Take three of you guys like bento box. I don't know what's wrong. Here's the thing. Many of us compartmentalize our faith like a bento. This is where the rice goes. This is where the fish cake goes. This is where the, you know, the, the meat goes. This is where that, this, that. And we have our little compartments. What God is calling us to have is a locomoco faith. What is one locomoco faith? It's a whole pile of rice with one fat hamburger patty, an egg on top, and gravy all over that bad boy. When you take a bite of a locomoco, you can't tell the difference between the meat and the egg because it all tastes like gravy, right? That's your life, Christian, disciple of Jesus. You're our locomoco kind of faith, amen? That's how it is. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the gravy. When the, you're covered with the Spirit of God. It don't matter what's in your mouth because it's all going to taste like gravy anyway, amen? But that's our life. Don't overly compartmentalize what the Lord has says, keep together, because you're that everywhere. You're not just a believer and a disciple on Sundays. Tomorrow, guaranteed, every single person here, you're going to have the opportunity to go out and preach the gospel in some way, using your words, using your hands, using whatever God's given you to bring the message of hope and joy to this world. You've got it. You carry that. So don't put it down. Don't leave church and like leave it at the door. Be like, oh, see you next Sunday, little, little compartment of faith. No, 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 no. Take it out with you, put it on your locomoco and spread gravy on top. Make it an all-week kind of thing. Amen? Amen. How do you malama your time? Where is most of your time spent? If our time is spent in the family, we have powerful opportunity to change this world. I'm not even just saying that to be exaggerating. Pope John II, yep, John Paul II said it this way, where the family goes, so the world goes. The culture of our family is everything. So if we can minister and make disciples multi-generationally, so as I preach the gospel and my kids catch the Spirit of God living in me, I can release them into their calling, not holding on insecurity because I need their relationship in my life, trying to vicariously live through them. I can fully release them because I know that God has a mission for them, that He used our family as a platform to launch them. And now guess what? They're going to start one of their own. God is building his kingdom one family at a time. This is why John, Paul, sorry, Jesus says it this way. He says, I'm going to go to my father. In my father's house, I'm building more rooms because there's a multi-generation of adding to the home. God is looking for a home. Speaking of home, guess what? Here's the last point for today. Your home is a weapon against darkness. I don't know if you noticed that before. Your home is a true weapon against darkness. Jesus did arguably about 40 miracles in his ministry. About 10 of them, 25% happened in a home, in a house. 
Have you realized that before? Setting matters. Why is Jesus doing all these miracles in people's houses? Let's take a look. Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector of the region, meaning people didn't like him. He had no access to friends. He was one of those 30-year-olds with zero friends because he was a tax collector. He, was in a, he abandoned his Jewish culture to serve Rome. He was very rich. And oftentimes they got rich by manipulating people. So it says this, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. So he climbed, he's too short to see, he climbs the fence to watch Jesus teach and he knows Jesus is going to come out this way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, check on down. I have to be a guest in your home today. <laughs> whoa, 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 what is he doing? Jesus is calling this man down and he's saying, we're going to your house. The setting matters. The story goes on. He says this, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. What? He's gone to be a guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. He's a tax collector. He's going to that guy's house. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood up before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Wow. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. Amen? Salvation didn't come to him. Salvation came to his house. What does that mean? People have debated it, but I'll give you the short version. He didn't save a building. Jesus didn't say, this house is going to be in heaven. He said, salvation has come to this household. This household, all who dwell within it have now been saved by the head of the household's faith, and there's going to be a generational blessing that's going to come onto that house. This is the assumption that Jesus is putting into this statement. Now, here's what's craziest part about the story. You might have noticed. Jesus calls him down. Let's go to your house. He says, okay, shoots. They go to the house, and then all of a sudden, it just says Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will get, there's a huge repentance. I'm going to give all the money back. And here's what's crazy. If I've cheated people, I'll give them back four times. The law required he give them two times. He's going beyond what the law required because his heart was so changed by this time with Jesus. What happened in that room? We don't know. We don't know what Jesus said to him to change his mind. Here's what I think when I read this passage. It was less about what Jesus said, more about his actions with his feet. That he hosted a man who was lost in his sin. And the home became a place of reconciliation. And in his home, that's why he said, we have to go to your home for this to happen. Because in the home, there's a sacred space. In the home is where we find love and meaning and purpose and belonging. And he said, it's in this place you're going to find salvation. I remember when I was a kid, I got ministered to my by my children's church teacher around the age of six or seven. But when I got home, it was at home I sat in the corner and prayed to Jesus to ask him into my life at like six years old. Because there's something about home where that's where I need to encounter Jesus. 
It wasn't necessarily at church. You can not to say church is bad. It's to say that there's something about home. It's a precious, precious space. Amen? And this is what I, want, this is what I believe is this word hospitality. Everyone say hospitality. <laughs> hospitality is not just something that some people carry. It's actually a way of Jesus that we all walk into. To host somebody. God has given you our, us, our families, to host other people. So when we get so uh, connected with just our little ohana and we don't use our home to host other people, we're actually keeping people outside of the generational blessing that God has put on our family. He says, share that. Because God is up to something, and if you host people, here's what happens. Your guard comes down. David says it this way. He's like, God is crazy. God, I'm out fighting my enemies, and in the midst of fighting my enemies, God says, he prepares a table before me, and he says, sit down at this table. Your cup's going to overflow, even while his enemies are present. Why is it there's such a powerful thing about the table? Because when you come into my life, into my house, step foot into my home, something happens where you say, I'm letting my guard down. I'm letting you into a vulnerable place where you get to know my family, and we want you to belong here. There's no better preaching of the gospel than letting someone else into your home. Amen? Put it this way. Both passages that talk about pastor's qualifications, what it takes for it to be an elder or pastor in the, to the church, Timothy and Titus, both of them say this. Pastors, elders in the church have to open their home to others. Why? It's so important because that's how God ministers to people is through homes. So this is something for you. If you might be thinking like this, oh, but my house is messy. Guess what? No matter the mess. In fact, bring someone over. If I go into someone's house and they have a messy house, I actually feel more welcome that you would invite me in with it looking like this. Right? I'm not judging you. My house is messy too. But when you come in and say, come and just see what life is like with us. Right? And you can say, oh, pardon the mess. Right? I do that all the time. Oh, excuse the mess. And everyone's like, no, it's fine. Right? But don't let simple things like that. My house is too messy. My house is really small. Right? If your house is small, for like brought us here, we were talking about this on Tuesday. For guys in barracks, you don't have to host people in the barracks, okay? That's fine. But the principle of hospitality actually goes beyond the location itself. It goes to what is your heart to host people? What kind of heart do you have to bring people in and give them belonging? Jesus, in a home, saves Zacchaeus. The road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with two guys. He gets invited into a home. It's not till he gets in the house, Jesus reveals himself to these men. And then he disappears. It's a whole thing. Then there's another story. Mark 2, the house in Capernaum. Jesus is teaching in a house, and that's where people lower the man, the paralytic man, through the roof. It happens all over the place. Jesus steps into a home, and people get saved there. What would it look like for Jesus to step into your home and watch people come to know Christ in a meaningful way because you've let you down your guard. And as C.S. Lewis says, to love is to be vulnerable. It's a vulnerable thing to let someone into your home, but that's what love does. It lets them in. And when you let someone into your home, you have no idea the kind of love that God can manifest in that place. Amen? Your home is special. Your home is a weapon against darkness. Nothing worse than feeling a part of a Christian community but nobody goes to each other's homes. <laughs> in fact, the first church was formed in what? Homes. That's where, how the first church launched. So what would it look like for us to open our doors? Even if we get studio apartments, bring one person in. 
bring them in and say, hey, come and be a part of my family. We want to show you the way we live. I want to show you what God is doing in our family. I want to love you with this food that I'm preparing for you. The heart of hospitality is the heart of Jesus himself, who gave everything as he hosted us. And think about it this way. We are now hosting the presence of God in our own bodies. It says we have become the home to the Holy Spirit. So as we host others, we're bringing others into the home the way, same way that Christ came into us and dwelt among us. Amen? What a cool thing. So I want to leave you with a picture, and we're going to take communion here this morning. This is what I want to encourage our families as we leave this Ohana series. This is a kukui nut candle. And this is from the internet. I don't know if this is what they used to look like for real kind. But I love this image because look at this. This is your family. Your calling is to shine the light that Christ has put inside of you. Amen? That's all it is. Your calling, believer, disciple, shine that light. God has put it in you. Show other people what you carry. Bring them into that. Love them through that. And what a kukuina does is it holds that flame. And I love this because this is what a family is. It's a collection of kukuinats. The more that we walk in the light together, the brighter the light we shine as a family. Amen? That's our family right there. All those kukuinats are all the kids, all the parents, all the sisters, brothers, everybody. We become a torch that the world sees differently. And I want to leave it with this verse. First, check out verse John. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleans us all from all sin. When we shine together, we come closer together, our fire burns brighter, and the blood of Christ washes all of us from our sin. The collective identity of what it means to be a family for Jesus, a family that is discipled by Christ. This is what the calling is. Amen? I am my brother's keeper. I'm my kid's keeper. I'm my wife's keeper. I'm all of it because I'm a part of something that God has established in my life. Amen? So I want to just encourage you to think and pray. And we'll pray right now together as worship team comes up. Let's pray right now. Actually, let's stand. We're going to stand and pray. Father, we, um, Jesus, we just enter your courts with thanksgiving in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you pour among us and over top of us all the time, continually. We thank you, Lord, for this showering of grace. We pray blessings on families in here, Lord, that are bus up, that feel broken, that feel like there's no hope, and it feels like we're too tense and we'll never bring back together. I declare that by the power of Jesus, all relationships can and will be fully reconciled in him by faith. And we pray, God, right now, upon that declaration that as we watched in that video before, that forgiveness would be the permeating culture of each of our households. That there would be no record of wrongs kept among fa- between family members. And church, if that's you this morning, if you have a record of wrongs against someone in your family, I want to encourage you that love keeps no record of wrongs. 
that God has conveniently forgot everything that you have committed, every sin, since coming to faith in Him. And in the same way, we don't forgive one time, seven times, but 70 times seven. Our forgiveness has no end because the forgiveness given to us is eternal. And so I just pray, church, right now, if that is you, would you hold your hands out in faith and just say, Lord, I'm giving this list back. My dad did this. I'm not going to hold it against him anymore. My wife, my husband continue to do this, but I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm going to pursue reconciliation. My kids are driving me crazy. Lord, here's the list. I'm not keeping a record of wrongs. Lord, we thank you for the act of faith right now of us, each of us, laying down our own insecurities, our own frustrations and anger and bitterness towards people. Jesus, we thank you that there is not one spot or blemish on our hearts in Christ. And Father, may that forgiveness, that spirit of forgiveness, flow into our families. We thank you, Jesus, that we have been called white as snow. There is not one stain on this garment because I believe in the one who has cleansed us from it. And so, Jesus, we just honor you. We pray, God, that there would just be deep-felt communication that hasn't existed yet in our families. We pray, Jesus, that the love and the respect that has been lacking would come up and would be shown in, in insurmountable ways. Jesus, that a sense of mission in our neighborhoods and in our businesses would just come up and our kids would join us. Our parents would join us. Our uncles, aunties, sisters, brothers would all come together and say, what is the Lord doing in this ohana? And Lord, that we may walk that light as a group of kukui nuts in our family, that we might share that fire with one another. That fire would burn not just bright, but long, Lord. Through the dry seasons, may it burn long. May it keep the darkness at bay because of the length, the duration that that light is burning. And Jesus, we just pray right now that every single family represented here would find full reconciliation. Father, go and help us to admit when we were wrong. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just and you forgive us of those sins. You purify us from every single bit of unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift. May we, Lord, not be afraid of confessing where we have been wrong. Remove our pride, God. Remove our pride, our unmet expectations, our insecurities. Jesus, may our families blossom with new life, new growth, and a new sense of love because you're taking over our homes. You're hosting us in our own home like you do best. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. We love you, Jesus, and bless every ohana in here. We thank you for the beautiful beautiful families that you have created and are in process of creating in this ohana that we call New Hope Kailua. Jesus, we love you. We, give, we put just your name high on the banner. It's for your kingdom, your power, your glory alone that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.